Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show, featuring Jason Zook. In uncertain times, we must change our focus and priorities. This show will highlight social justice issues with the goal of expanding minds and increasing unity, love, and mutual respect for ourselves and our planet. We support the Black Lives Matter movement. Our show aspires to promote social spirituality, which simply means that by coming together, we can solve any of our problems, including the goal of bringing an end to all forms of hate, discrimination, bias, or oppression. We must protect our environment, reform our criminal justice system, and protect every citizen from police brutality. When we come together, it becomes possible to bridge the gaps that plague our society and divide us from within. We the people means everyone. Kate Burr's Kitchen is a professor of criminology and department chair at Tennessee State University in Nashville. She's the author of Female Gang Participation, and she's also co-authored an article on racism in higher education in the College Student Journal in 2000. Her publications also include a book titled Short, Short Rage, an autobiographical look at heightism in America in 2002. And she also has a book chapter titled Pathways to Prison, Implications for the Health and Mental Health in the African-American Community in Handbook for African-American Health Psychology, which is an evidence-based treatment and prevention practices book. She also authored From Slavery to Prisons, A Historical Delineation, of the Criminalization of African-Americans in 2010, a journal article titled Short Rage Revisited in 2018, and Deviance and Control, which was in 2020, as well as a second edition of Deviance and Control, which was released by Kendall and Hunt in 2021. Dr. Burst Kitchen has served as the chair of the research committee and as vice president of the National Organization of Short-Statured Adults. She also served as president for Association of Humanist Sociology and was a member of AHS for many years. Our guest has also been a member of the American Society of Criminology and the American Sociological Association. Dr. Burris Kitchen is also a recognized activist who fights against violence, racism, exploitation, greed, and capitalism. It's with great pleasure I present our special guest to the show. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be here. You make me a little speechless because I'm reading your intro. <laughs> and from my vantage point, before we start the interview, I'll just tell you a little about my own personal I would say passion with this topic and these areas from when George Floyd was murdered in 2020. I have to say that it's a privilege to have you on. I love that we can cover this topic today. And I think what you're doing for the work that you do is probably one of the most paramount things our society needs right now in higher education. Uh, You see the affront that's going on when you see Florida and Ron DeSantis trying to dismantle basic core African-American studies uh, Mm. for AP courses or his attacks on other minority groups. And I want to ask you as an educator and as an activist, what steps do you think we can do to slow down what these certain elements of our society are trying to accomplish on their own and reversing the progress our society has made? I think probably the most important thing we can do is just keep talking about the injustices. Um, Never forget, you know, every time someone like a Tyree Nichols or, you know, Anybody gets assaulted by the police or killed by the police or, you know, any other injustices out there, whether it be poverty or exploitation or, you know, people just being left with nothing because of greed. 
that we just keep putting it out there, you know, don't let people stop talking about it. And then um, I think the most important thing is to vote. You know, we need to get people out of office that that are like having, you know, spewing hate nonstop. I mean, we have political people that are just spewing hate for the other. And, you know, it's just if we can't, we got to get out there and vote against them. I, you know, people need to vote in their interest, not for these people who have no interest in working with them or protecting them or serving them. I feel like we're on a razor thin wire mm-hmm. between our society where we've been used to it all this time, right? As a secure society trying to promote diversity, equality, and inclusivity. And it's like a laser thin. It could be one election that just changes all that for us. And that's how fragile our democracy is. Absolutely. But I keep getting, I, I will say this. I follow politics as a, as a hobby because I did poli as one of my majors in college. Looking at our political system, I have a renewed confidence in the electorate right now. I have a renewed confidence because I feel like Generation Z, the younger generations, I feel like what happened with abortion rights, and I feel like there's going to be a grand coalition that happens in the future that's going to help change and secure permanently these things that we fight so dearly for now in our quote-unquote culture wars that are unnecessary. And I want to ask your perspective on it. Do you think uh, going forward 2024 and beyond, do you feel confident as well? Or do you do you have fears and doubts, or how do you look at it from your perspective? I I feel very confident, especially being around, you know, these young adults that are eighteen to twenty four. You know, being in the college environment, I'm seeing a lot more talk and concern among young students. When you know, about a decade ago, it was almost like so much apathy. When you, when you talk to students about issues like mass incarceration of people of color and you're teaching at HBCU and you get no reaction, you know, that's concerning to me. But now I can see that, you know, people are getting antsy to do something to bring about change. And then Amanda Gorman's speech at the inauguration just gave me some renewed confidence, too, that these young people are going to step up to the plate and, you know, start the revolution all over again. They're tired of seeing it. I mean, they're tired of watching their own be killed for by police. Yeah, I by mean, police. I got goosebumps just now when you said that. I, I, when I, when I watch these videos of of body cam footage of what I consider savage, savage mm-hmm. abuse and death and murder of of, of innocent victims, it, it outrages me. And I don't ever want us to become desensitized to that. No. I, I think the one thing, and I agree with you, I think there is a renewed optimism for myself after the recent election, just seeing that, you know, we didn't have things cave in. Mm-hmm. And I still have a lot of confidence being an attorney myself in our legal system and our criminal justice system, which I know you've studied extensively as well. Right. What are your views about the mass incarceration crisis that we have? Because I've had a couple of guests come on in the past to cover this type of topic, and we know we need reform. We know we need to make changes. But how are we going to do that systemically when the system itself is set in such a way where it's very hard to make those changes? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that's happened recently is just the decriminalization of marijuana, because that was the number one problem, as far as I can see, of mass incarceration of people of color. They would just police those communities, African-American and Hispanic communities, and, you know, just for drug abuse, you know, and we had more people in prison for nonviolent drug abuse than for violent crimes. And we have people in prison for 20, 25 years to life for marijuana possession. And it was predominantly people of color. When you look, if you break it down by um, nonviolent drug offenses, almost 70% of people in prison for nonviolent drug offenses are people of color, Blacks or Hispanics. That's obscene. Yeah. 
I yeah, mean, it is. <laughs> what's the difference between the Jim Crow era in the South and apartheid in South Africa, right? I mean, they were very, very similar. And yet our society seems to try to draw these like, distinctions later after the fact that like, oh, I mean, I believe in the American dream and all that. But then you also look at the dark side of the American dream, right. which is the exploitation of our minority groups. And from your perspective, when you saw that Jim Crow eventually got dismantled, but there's still a system in, in effect of controlling. There's still what they call sundown towns. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I learned about this stuff after George Floyd happened because I wanted to educate. I must feel like, you know, when you watch The Matrix from the 90s and you take that one pill and you're out of the pod and you realize you're in this new reality. I feel like that kind of paradigm shift happened to a lot of us in 2020 between the pandemic, George Floyd and the aftermath. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why I feel pretty comfortable talking to you today that I'm so happy to do, you do the work you do. And I wanted to definitely share your your viewpoints with our audience because of how important it is. For your vantage point and the work that you've done during the course of your career, what progress have you seen in our society and amongst students and educators and people in your circle on the topic of dismantling systemic racism and and making efforts and strides to do so? Well, if any, (laughs) I mean, things do still look eerily the same. And I've been around a long time. I'm 62 years old. And I've seen a lot of different movements and a lot of progress that gets like turned backwards very quickly. Like, for example, during the Jim Crow and the dismantling of the Jim Crow era, it wasn't but five years later, we had the war on drugs. And next thing you know, you know, we're taking away people's rights to vote and incarcerating people for non, like I said earlier, nonviolent offenses. So it starts all over. And then they don't, then they don't get access to education. We're locking them up when they're at an age where they should be developing social capital and, and work skills. And instead they're sitting in a prison cell and, and it's blocking being able to get generational wealth. If they have kids, their families. And so it just kind of starts all over again. And then We've normalized the mass incarceration of people of color. We've normalized locking people up for nonviolent drug offenses. And that's led to the same kind of problems that we had during the Jim Crow as far as people not being able to have access to quality education, people not having access to quality housing, people not having access to money, jobs, because the prison system or criminalizing people has left them vulnerable to you know not being able to have things i have to ask you this because this is something that pops in my head as you're talking right now one of my own realizations and i'm just going to say it as i say it is i feel like our white population lives in the white bubble mm-hmm. where we are immune to not seeing the, the dark side of this system in other words if it wasn't for george floyd a lot of us had wool over our eyes and i think there's a, a system so entrenched in our in our concepts that if you don't see it firsthand, or if you don't know someone that's affected by this, you know, police brutality or mass incarceration or whatever it is, you're not going to be able to really understand it because if you're immune from it, you're not going to, you're not going to intersect. And I want to see if you could talk a little about that. It's just my own. I, I was amazed to hear about sundown towns. I was shocked that there were towns in our country historically for the last hundred years or more that required African-Americans or people of color to stay home and not go out and venture after the sun goes down or they could have threats to their violence or have arrest or be intimidated. And and that shocked me. And there's still towns like that out there. They just don't make it public, but it's understood. And I'm just like, how can we evolve as a democracy and as a civil society when we have these 
rigid systems in place that are archaic and dinosaurs at this point. It should be extinct. I think one of the things that that did happen that was very positive was when Barack Obama got elected and reelected. And we saw a lot of progress, just like during Reconstruction period. You know, there's a lot of progress for Blacks and Black communities and, and politicians. And next thing you know, you know, after Reconstruction, then we got the Jim Crow era come. And we, I mean, we saw that with Barack Obama, all kinds of progress. And then next thing you know, we've Donald got Trump. Donald Trump, which is pretty much the same thing, right? It's starting all over again. And I think what happens is that people get, the whites got complacent in their minds that, hey, we're still the power structure. And then Barack Obama gets elected. And then you've got all these, I don't, extremist whites that are like, oh my I mean, gosh. It's what it is. We can call yeah. it what it is. Extreme the racist extreme, bigoted the, white people. Right. The extreme right? racist bigoted white people said, oh my God, there's a black president. And then Trump starts saying, hey, you know, we know how we can get, you know, how we can change things. We can bring all that hate and ugliness and victimization back. And we can bring our country back, which is white male, you know, people of power being white male politicians. And and then I don't know why these, corruption. <laughs> these female white female politicians jumping on board are the ones that blow my mind because before Trump even got elected, he was, you know, they were showing tapes of him talking about. You know, grabbing women in inappropriate places. And it's like, and women voted for him? It's like, really? But I think that fear brought out this group of whites that thought <laughs> we've got everything that we that we need. We've got the political dominance and all this stuff. And now we don't. So they're scared. They're running scared. And when they run scared, they start developing more repressive laws to control this population. And that's exactly what happened during the war on drugs. That's exactly what happened after after Reconstruction. We're seeing it start all over again. I think the one thing, the only thing we can do is just make sure that we get those people out of positions of power. We just got to get them out. We can't. Start with the Supreme Court. <laughs> right. Oh, my goodness. I, mean, I, I don't know what we're gonna, Supreme Court we've ever had is in existence right now. I, I don't know what we're going to do about that. And that's dangerous because there's nothing we can do about that. Well, I mean, and there are things we can. We have to get yeah. enough elected to Congress right. and the presidency in order to make reforms and even right. more justices yeah. on, the, on the court or potentially scrutinize the ones who lied in their application process. Get them out. Yeah, because I mean, those are lifetime appointments. So we have to change policy to get rid of lifetime appointments. Because you know a, I love this conversation topic because you have your background and I have my background. We both have our passions and it's like really mm -hmm. cool. I was going to say this. I know that if we get, it's like exactly how you started this conversation out with, with me, with our audience. If we get enough people to be politically active, if we can create enough of a coalition, a, a consensus among our electorate that aren't extremists, that aren't radical, that aren't bigoted, that's a saving silver lining of our society. I think that's going to be the changing. And I feel like that's going to do this decade is going to be one of the most monumental decades of our country's development and path to where it's going to head. Because I feel like that coalition is slowly forming and coalescing around our shared values and topics that have been under assault since Trump ran for office. And I was talking about our reconstruction and the civil rights movement and all that. And every time there's, you know, pushback from people who are trying to bring about positive change. They try to re make more repressive laws and stuff like that. But we always come out on the winning side. I mean, if you look at. It's the right side of history. That's why. Right. Right. So, you know, after Reconstruction and then 
the Jim Crow era that got reversed, you know, after the war on drugs, all of a sudden now we're, you know, not locking people up for nonviolent drug offenses. So things, you know, they do change and there's more of us than there are of them. A lot more of us than there are of them. Which is my next point that all we have to do is really come together. Right. And, and stand firm in our conviction that our country is not going to tolerate this kind of stuff and that we're going to make real changes. It's a complicated thing, but it doesn't need to be. What's complicated right. about the fact that we did these horrible things in the past and we can't talk about it now? Right. We can't talk about the KKK rise or the emergence during the 1920s of a, a racist movement across the country for fear of immigrants and jobs being. I mean, this thing's been, this has been going on longer than you and I have been here and probably right. our grandparents even and great grandparents. I, I could go back generations, but. Well, that's been a tool but that's been used for or hundreds of years as well as to, you know, separate or segregate the working class or the petty bourgeois, you know, keep them all separated and hating each other based on, you know, skin color or whatever. And then they won't organize together. And we can't let, let them do that. And that's one of the things I think we figured out from the civil rights movement is when everybody got together and decided we're all going to fight this, we win. But as long as we stay separated based on gender, race, money. whatever, yeah, money, social class, right, then we'll never, you know, we have to stay together. We're all part of this country together. We're all in it together. None of us are part of that elite. There's like 1% that's, you know, that elite group that wants to dictate to us how we're supposed to treat each other because it, they're the only ones that benefit from it. We're not benefiting from hating each other. No. No. Not at all. I, I want to ask you about your book, Exposed. Sure. Sure. What motivated you to write your book and tell our audience a little about it? Yeah, I think during COVID and all the ugliness after the Trump administration, I just needed to get a lot of things out. You know, I was just so angry. And this was very therapeutic for me. The first chapter is really just kind of talking about love and relationships. And then the second chapter, I start talking about, you know, gender related issues and toxic masculinity and how that leads to women's victimization and domestic violence and disparities in wealth between men and women, the glass ceiling. It's short stories and poetry. Some of the short stories are a little bit based um, reality, but a lot of it's fiction, you know, built in fiction. And then the third chapter is where I kind of hit hard with what I call my protest poetry chapter, where I talk about things like one of them's called exposure of a cast. One of them's called I want a seat at the table. And that's really about, you know, the whole, you know, I want to sit down with the Donald Trump <laughs> and tell him, you know, what's on my mind. So it's just the third chapter is really a lot of just anger at the way the system treats people, you know, humans and beings and how we're all in this together. And it's, it's just got to stop. And I finish it off with a poem called Someday. You know, someday I hope that we can all live together in peace and harmony and treat each other with dignity and respect and, you know, kind of with a positive ending. But the book was really just, I was so angry. Mm -hmm. You know, when we were isolated for COVID and just after everything that I'd seen for four years of the Trump administration, I just needed to get things out there. And I call it exposed because I just lay everything out there on the table you know, what I've experienced. And I, I didn't hold anything back. Well, I like, you're my exhibit A. 
<laughs> like you did that and you wrote your book and I dived more into my podcast and started doing social justice stuff. I educate myself with every person that comes on my show. And I want to make sure I, for the audience benefit, it's called Exposed, Time to Put an End to Social Injustice and Inequality, a Political and Economic Critique on American Society by veteran author and professor, Dr. Deborah Jean Morris, Forrest Kitchen, sorry. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to seeing what you do in the future because I will tell you that you're only at the beginning of your, you came out of a cocoon through the pandemic. And I think you're, that this is just the first of a series of books that you're going to write about your candid discussions on these issues and topics because of when we're pushed to the wall as a society, and I feel like we're all forced to see the reality of what our situation's like in race relations. And I keep going back to 2020, but we know back to Rodney King. We know during the civil rights movement, all, I mean, you can go back as far as you want to go, 1619. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you this. Why do you think they're so afraid of learning or of us discussing the past? with the idea of revealing the truth of everything, how there was exploitation of African-Americans and slavery and injustices. And I mean, what's what's the threat to them? Meaning the Trumpists and the people on the other side that are, are DeSantis racing to do all these calculated things. I, I, I don't understand it. It's I, so foreign to me. Yeah, I've got my suspicions. It, to care about someone else, you have to have empathy. To read about the history starting from 1619, as you referenced, to find about the history of what's been done to di different racial and ethnic groups in our country would cause people, or to even talk about what's going on currently, as far as race relations, people would have empathy. They want to say that we, we don't want our kids to feel guilty and ashamed. No, that's not what it's about. It's what we don't want our kids to have empathy for the other. As long as we hate the other, and don't know anything about the other. Because if you know something about the other, you can't hate the other. You know, once you get to know somebody, and I used to teach race and ethnic relations and when I was out in Southern California at another university, and I would talk about all the different ethnic groups. I'd break it down, you know, one week we'd talk, or a couple weeks we'd talk about Asians and Hispanics and different, you know, Hispanic cultures. And, and I would have students come up after class, and they would say, well, aren't Asians, you know, because I talk about, you know, this is the Asian stereotype. Well, aren't, you know, isn't it a stereotype because all Asians are like that? I'd say, well, how many, and this is in California, so I know they've met some Asians. I said, so, I said, so how many Asians do you actually know? Well, I have a friend that, I have one friend that's an Asian. I said, is that Asian, does that your Asian friend fit your stereotype? Oh, no. Well, why do you think that one Asian friend you have? is the only Asian that doesn't fit the stereotype, the negative stereotype that we just discussed in class. You know, and you'd have to, you'd break it down that way with each group. Like, you know, a Hispanic student might say, well, the Blacks I've met, you know, they do fit the stereotype or the Blacks I've seen. Well, how many Blacks are your friends? Well, I have two. Are, are either one of them gangsters or drug dealers? No. You know, so you, yeah, you have to break it down that way. So like, but going back to my point, if you get to know somebody, as an individual, as a human being, not as a stereotype, then you'll have empathy for them and you won't buy into the stereotypes. I mean, it's easy to buy into a stereotype if you don't know a person. Absolutely. And and I just, I, I get speechless on this topic sometimes because of the enormity of how much it impacts our daily lives in different ways. And like to use the term woke as a bad word, <laughs> it, just, it baffles me. Yeah. You have... 
these culture wars that are raging in unnecessary ways after a million Americans more passed from COVID and our system's been under attack since 20, well, for a long time, I should say. It's like, I think the best thing we could do is keep having these conversations like you're saying. And I also think that our audience needs to learn more about your book and about you and about social justice and inequities. I think my short education in it has really opened up my eyes to the point where I, I see things. And when a new video comes out of someone being savagely beaten and killed by police officers, and you brought up the most recent example, killed by, by African-American police officers, mm-hmm. it's, it's crippling to the spirit. Yeah, it is. And I want to ask you this, what, what's your viewpoint on that? That you actually had race on race violence from African-Americans. It's on the black community. It's, it's, it's horrifying and how that can happen. Police get, when they get into their positions and there's always been this push to hire more African-American police officers, but there has been several studies of African-American police officers. And once they get indoctrinated into the policeman mentality, they become just like white officers as it is to policing the black community. I mean, they're just as angry. They're just as violent. They're just as quick to react. Um, There's just this culture of blacks are more violent. So we have to use more force to protect ourselves when we're policing a black community. A black police officer, they might come out of TSU out of my program, all fired up about, I'm going into this for the right reason. But 10 years down the road after working at Metro, they might be give them some kind of a study, psychological study, and they would probably look just like the white police officer when they're responding to questions about who are the most violent people in the community. What do they look like? And there used to be a study uh, that we did at the University of Laverne, one of my colleagues, or he put on a slide. I mean, this was many years ago. It was on a projector screen, (laughs) but he would put up a picture of a white guy carjacking a black person driving a car. And he would put that up on the screen for a couple of seconds and, you know, turn it off. And he'd say, I want everybody to tell me what color was the carjacker and what color was the person driving the car. And 95% of the students, every time it'd be 90 to 98% of the students said the black guy was the one carjacking. And basically he was teaching about, you know, how witnesses can't be reliable in the court system. Bias too, obviously. But the bigger... Right. The bigger story is, why do we always see black when we think of crime? And it was Hispanic students, it was black students, it was white students. You know, all of them went directly to it was a black person that was the criminal. I have to add a point to that because this is my own personal experiences. Working remotely and and at night, I watch TV, I look at the news, I'll survey the different news channels just for, you know, coverage. I'll put on it CNN, the I do the cable channels. And then I go to Fox. And every time I watch Fox, not I, I watch it more as an observer. I would never be indoctrinated by the stuff they they spew right. out. But when you watch the channels, and I challenge my audience to do the same. If you have to, I, one time my remote died and got stuck on the channel. I had to find the batteries really quickly. But I, it's almost like you 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 survey this other side, and their coverage is the immigrants, the border, this one. And then they pick these isolated episodes of crime from minority groups on whites. This one killed this person in California. This one shot this person in Arizona. And I'm watching and I'm thinking mass hysteria is all they're they're feeding their audience. And when you have an audience fed like that, spoon fed 24 seven, you're going to have these viewpoints that are so different than what you and I value or uh, our mainstream society values because that empathy is eroded. 
by the mm-hmm. indoctrination of the repeated coverage of the negative footage. I don't, I mean, I know what their goal is. And obviously they seem to have some viewership. I mean, they have a lot of viewership. That's the scary part. Well, I'll ask you, like, have you, have you ever seen that before where you look at this and you just think to yourself, you scratch your head and, and you take a step back because you are a sociologist and you're an educator, you're highly qualified to look at this stuff and say, this has to stop. We've got to stop criminalizing each other based on race. And I say that every day. <laughs> I just, uh, yeah, it's it's got to stop. And that that's what allowed that. What was his name? Ridden, Riddenauer. Oh my God, I was horrified. To just walk down story. the street with an horrified. automatic weapon and nobody stopped him. Horrified. horrified. I mean, could you imagine if a young black man walked down the street with an automatic weapon? Do you think he would get two inches down the road no, before they not just, out the door? Not out the door. They wouldn't even got There'd out be a of the car. Team circling the building. Right. <laughs> Yeah, he wouldn't even got out of the car. They would have just shot up the car. Yeah, you know, it's it, it's it's. I'm stuttering. That's how much I get affected by this. I'll tell. I you. know. I do the same it, thing. It's like because we know we're better than this. Mm-hmm. If we focus more on getting along with one another, we have external pressures internationally with Ukraine and Russia and China and Taiwan and all these other things that are happening. Like we need to pull together, right? And society itself is a fragile thing. We saw that on January 6th. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think it's going to take in order to really make inroads on this topic of eliminating systemic racism, getting rid of mass incarceration, making positive impacts in meaningful ways that really change everything so we don't fall backwards when someone like Trump takes office or there's an incident like Kyle Rittenauer that goes and kills innocent people who are protesting injustice? Well... I'm, I'm going to just step over the line here. I'm going to say we got to re we got to relook at capitalism. I'm a I consider myself a democratic socialist, and I really think that a lot of the hate, or we allow a lot of the hate to be created based on our economic structure. I mean, there's just economic power differences that everyone's in fear of not having things to the point where, and there's so much greed that. You know, if you've got something, that means I don't have it, right? So I'm hating the other because they're taking something away from me. And that's like why they're reversing all this, the equal opportunities for education stuff. Mm-hmm. Like affirmative trying to take, away, yeah, affirmative action. Um, they're trying to, re, you know, like reverse all affirmative action because whites truly believe that blacks are getting in taking their spots in colleges and universities. And actually, if you study what affirmative action did, it actually lowered in some places the amount because we said, oh, I only have to take 10%. <laughs> yeah, we used to take in 15%. Now we only have to take in 10%. That's a but bare minimum. So, so it's the media. I don't know. It's not just the media, but the politicians, I guess, control the media and people who are wealthy try to convince us that if someone else has something, then they've taken it away from us. And they try to bifurcate us based on race. And that's there's no reality to that. So, I mean, a democratic socialist society would allow us to, you know, how you treat your least defines you as a country. I agree with that. I and, think- and I don't know whose quote that is. I know it's not mine. But it's okay. I, you can. <laughs> but um, I, and that's what I always come to is we don't treat our poorest with any dignity or respect. We treat animals better than we treat people that don't have anything. And a lot of people don't have anything. They have all kinds of medical issues or mental health issues. It's really not that they can do things. I mean, 
we need to take care of them. We need to take care of our elderly. We need to take care of immigrant children who are crossing the border because they're fleeing countries where there's so much violence. Um, and we choose not to take care of people because of greed, because people mm-hmm. want, you know, to hoard wealth. And there's so, I mean, there's billionaires now, lots of billionaires. When I was growing up, it was a big deal. Someone was a millionaire. And now we got billionaires. <laughs> it's like, what do you need a billion, you know, billions of dollars for? We also I'm, have stupid billionaires. If you think about it, some of them that feel out anti-Semitic. Oh, I know. It's just dollars in a short amount of time. Right. I mean, right. So, I mean, who needs, why can't we feed children? You know, why, why not free school lunches for children that can't afford to eat? My mom used to, uh, as a retired educator in Patterson, New Jersey, 27 years, she taught impaired, uh, neurologically impaired students in, in our in our school system, public system. The story she would tell me growing up, and even now, she still recounts that there were students of hers that wouldn't eat on the weekend. And they literally survived by eating on the, the free assistant food program through the education system. And people in our, in, our, in our audience probably would think, well, how could that be? Well, yeah, it's very possible. And our society does need to take care of its own. Anytime I go for a walk here in Tampa, I live in Tampa. There are more homeless than I, I would. My heart goes out to anyone I see mm-hmm. homeless because you're at the bottom of your life in a way and you're struggling. And then you you, you see society where mm-hmm. we ignore. It's like they're invisible. Have you ever seen on social media where a guy walks around with a sign and he says, I need help. I'm depressed. I'm homeless. Please help me. Just someone talk to me. And all these people walk past them. And then he comes back and he flips the sign over and says, I have free money to give away. Come talk to me and I'll give you a dollar. And all these people flood to him. Mm-hmm. That's your example right there of what you're talking about. Right. Is how can we ignore our most vulnerable? But then when there's something in it for us, a dollar, we're all of a sudden like, oh, hi, how are you? Mm-hmm. And how do you change that in a society that's been driven that way for quite a long time? Yeah, it would take a yeah, an entire shift in the way we think about each other as human beings. At minimum, people have to have food, shelter, clothing. A livable wage. And a livable wage in order to survive and thrive and be contributors in our society. And we would all be better for it. Not just the handful of billionaires that want to exploit and get their piece of the pie and leave everybody else struggling for that bottom, you know, 1% of the wealth. Till we get to that point, you know, it's going to be ugly. Let's let's talk about gender because that's another important topic that has obviously been an issue. Misogyny is widespread. We have the glass ceiling that I feel is more of a glass fortress. Women are the biggest part of our society. I mean, the ERA never passed in the seventies. In the seventies, Equal Rights Amendment. Do you think there'll ever be a, a rebirth of that type of thing now that there's been an assault on abortion rights for women and contraception and all these other things? Like, do you think that? I personally think there will be. I think there's going to be a new women's movement. I've had premonitions about it. When I go for walks, I'll throw my psychic side here for a minute. Mm-hmm. I went for a walk once about a year ago, and I had a premonition. It was a flash of light in my mind, and it showed me news coverage from 10 years from now. And what it showed was a coalition of women coming together in such a way that we've never seen before, where they rise together and they vote, and they vote out the people that are anti-promoting you know, promoting women's rights and equality. And by the end of this decade, the premonition I had was, yes, it's going to be a rocky 2020s, but in the end, we wind up in a better spot altogether with some protections afforded. And I want to ask you, do you feel confident that that could happen? Or do you, from your own sociological perspective as an educator, like what's your viewpoint on that kind of thing? Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, we've always seen these pendulum swings. You know, the more people get 
you know, pushing the conservative side, the more the liberals start to fight back. Like I was saying earlier, it seems like the liberals, the ones that that are about humanity and justice, usually come out, you know, of those battles. So I see there's hope because every time something like this happens, you know, what's going on right now and what happened during the Trump administration, people organize and get together. They fought back. Yeah, they fight back. I think I think we can get back to that. I think there's enough hate right now that people are getting tired of it and that we're going to start fighting back again. And it, and it happens, you know, what, probably every 20 years, 30 years, you know, we go through these times when the white male power structure wants to redo everything and say, no, we want our country back or we want, you know, our power back. And every time, you know, people of color and women have to say, come on, <laughs> we're back. You know, we, we're fighting for our piece of the pie back. You keep taking, you know, every time they take somebody's rights too, we have to be careful, especially with abortion. That's why I tell my students, if they take one person's rights away, be careful because they're coming for yours next. We saw that with Clarence Thomas. Exactly. When he, when he, he I think he's the one who stated that one opinion when they took away abortion rights. He said, oh, well, let's look at, you know, LGBTQ protections. Let's look mm-hmm. at, I'm just like, we have a constitution. We have a bill of rights. We have fundamental rights that have evolved over the course of 200 years of our judicial precedent. And we have someone corrupt on the bench right now for the Supreme Court that's trying to roll a clock back that doesn't exist. There's no clock to roll back. There's right. no point there. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing, right? Mm-hmm. I, I have to say this. As you're talking, I write down certain words. I wrote down empathy, empower, educated, education, education, and grassroots. And those are four things that I'm feeling from what we're discussing in our conversation that we would need to stress to our audience and to the public that if you really want to make a difference and do something to help change our society, we've got to develop our empathy. We've got to empower one another. We've got to educate others that aren't necessarily on board with us. And we got to do it through grassroots and and, and do it through elections and voting rights and protecting our system. And I, I want to see if you had anything to add to that or what your take on that would be, if there's anything I'd missed or if you think, I mean, there's a lot, it's a very complicated thing. So I'm just kind of- Right. No, I think you've covered it. And and I, we really do. We got to stop seeing each other as competition. We've got to organize together. We have to have love for each other, respect, um, treat people with dignity. I mean- all that has to happen. And then, you know, once we do have empathy and we treat people with respect and uh, and dignity, then the other's just going to naturally come. We're going to want to take care of our children. And, society. you know, we're not going to say, why, sh- why should I feed that child, you know, with my tax dollars? You know, why can't they get a job and pull themselves? You know, that kind of ugliness, hopefully, if we love each other, will go away because you wouldn't say that if you love somebody or cared about somebody. You know, right? I'll say this uh, with all the meditation I do and one of the things I, I at least will say is we're all spiritual beings in physical bodies. And if you look at someone's melanin, then you're an idiot. Mm-hmm. Uh, judge somebody or make a perceived impression of someone. I think spirituality could help too, in a, in a way where it doesn't indoctrinate us to old cultural values of past, where you separate people. I think we could come together and and try to live a better society. And I think that comes from conversations and topics like today. I think, I mean, having this talk with you right now, it's 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 raised my my vibrational energy for probably the next 24 hours or 36 hours. This is for us conversation, you know, talking about these topics because I know how important it is for us to have these conversations, how important it is to broadcast these conversations when I'm living in a state that they're trying to erode the system I'm in. Well, mm-hmm. I have freedom of speech and thank God we have that in the United States. Do you think that we could use our constitutional system of protections to enforce and evolve 
in this debate so that we can protect everyone over the long run, kind of like a more perfected union, but it's taking the time to do so. And and I think you're right about the election and, and, and voting rights and all that. I think if we can get everyone in society to participate, there's more of us than them. <laughs> and I think we really will make the changes we're looking for. Yeah, I agree. We just need to all pull together and and enforce. I mean, we have a constitution that works. We just need to enforce it. People violate it and, and we don't check them on it. You know, so yeah, we all need to vote. We all need to hold people in power accountable for what they do. They're supposed to be representing us, you know, not, in our, in our not they their interests. Right. And they're failing in that. And maybe. Yeah. I want to ask you this. How can our audience find you? And how can they order your book and keep in touch with you? Okay. I have a web page. It's at www.debraburriskitchen.com. And that's D-E-B-O-R-A-H-B-U-R-R-I-S-K-I-T-C-H-E-N. All one word, you know. Deborah Burris Kitchen. And I also have a Facebook page is Deborah J. Burris Kitchen with the hyphen between Burris and Kitchen. And I can always be found at Tennessee State University in the directory under the Department of Criminal Justice. <laughs> I, I think what you're doing is just so much courage and, and you totally have my full respect and what and, and actually awe. Like I I really appreciate you coming on. Like when I first started doing this topic area expanding, because I was doing metaphysical stuff and spiritual stuff originally. I had a hard time finding some guests to come on originally. Like I was trying to look for social justice oriented people. And then I noticed the good news is in the last two years, three years, it's a whole area of specialty that is emerging, I think, for necessity. And I have to thank you so much for your book and for coming on and 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 sharing your your viewpoints because I think they're so important right now. And a civilized society is an educated society, an open minded society, and an empathic society, empathetic society, I should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to put your stuff in our show notes and everything and uh, okay. the website and everything. I, I just, I just want to thank you for coming on and, and sharing this today. And I'd love to have you come back again when you have your other books come out. Okay, sure. Because I, don't, I think you're a prolific author and you're going to have a lot more research coming. Even if you have an article in a scholarly magazine that you want to talk about, I would love to do that. I had like one of the episodes I had early on with this series, I call it like this topic area was I had Dr. Anthony Weems come on and talk about racism in the NFL. And that opened my eyes. Even our sporting events, you have Mm -hmm. things in place that limit the, you know, the structure and and create a a system of, of bias. And I mean, look, Kaepernick and I mean, this is, this could be its own podcast really right? because of the importance and prevalence of what we need. So uh, for today's purposes, I'm glad to be, able to introduce you to our audience. And I'm so excited to work with you in the future and share this stuff with our audience because it's like a medicine against the virus of racism. Thank well, you thank so much. You. Thank you so much for having me and I appreciate it. And yeah, I'd love to come back sometime and talk sure. about some more stuff. Absolutely. Well, and I look at it this way. If you have a governor of Florida trying to silence educators on these topics, they can't silence podcasts or publications. Like, speech is going to keep our society educated and informed, whether or not the other side likes it or not. So, right. And I appreciate you. I appreciate you having this kind of a podcast as well, because this stuff does need to actually be aired and talked about. That's the only way we can, you know, keep pushing, you know, pushing for change is to get the message out there. Absolutely. Thank you. I just want to thank Dr. Deborah Burris Kitchen for coming on today and sharing her 
perspective on this very complicated topic that our society needs to tackle and, and eradicate. It's a new pandemic that's existed hundreds of years, but our awareness of it through recent times has been increased. And I think we need to strike while the iron's hot. We need to have activism. We need to have awareness. We need to have discourse. These topics are vital. And I encourage our audience to buy Deborah's book, Exposed, check out her website, check out the information she's presenting. If you're in an area that you don't have anyone that you can have a dialogue with, find someone online to talk to that can help you with this topic area research. I, I watch a lot of Netflix movies, documentaries on topics with the civil rights movement, and I'm in awe at people who put their lives on the line. And I think for our society to be where it needs to be, we're going to have to all get together and work together. And as I said earlier, I, I just really think that this is the topic of the times. So check out Deborah's book, check out Dr. Burr's Kitchen's information. I'm going to share it. I look forward to partnering with her in the future because I think as a podcaster, we have a responsibility to share these views. So don't let the wool get pulled over your eyes. You know, if you're watching Fox News, I'm not I'm not going to say more than that. But if things don't make sense to you when you hear it the first time, it probably doesn't for a reason. So keep that in mind. Make sure you check your sources. When you're on social media, be responsible. Check your sources. Don't spread disinformation or hate. These things are important. We have to really have accountability, guys. So check out this information. Stay positive. Stay active. Because when you are involved and you're active and you band together, we can change these things. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook, and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms, and know that the universe is always yours to explore. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric Hass Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for season two of the Wanna Bet podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that season two starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. No more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric acid. Electric acid.